The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. My freshman year of college, I lived in the dorms at Colorado State University, which means that I ate dorm food three times every day. It also means that when somebody invited me over for a home-cooked meal, I wasn't likely to forget the invitation. I had a hard time remembering when my assignments were due, but if you were providing me with a home-cooked hot meal, I was there. And so when our young life leader stood in front of a group of about 30 trainees and said, everybody's invited over to my house for dinner next Tuesday, I didn't forget. But I was the only one who didn't, including him. And so when my roommate and I knocked on his door the next Tuesday and his wife answered the door, her face very clearly suggested that she was not expecting us to be standing right there. He had forgotten to tell her that he invited 30 people over. Luckily for him, my roommate and I were the only two people who remembered. And so they kindly invited us in and said, there's plenty of food, maybe. And a soup that was designed to feed five was stretched to seven. And we sat down at that dinner table. And the entire time we ate, as kind as they were, I just kept thinking to myself, we shouldn't be here right now. <laughs> and the half bowl of soup that I got reaffirmed everything that I was thinking. And so did his wife's face throughout the meal. We shouldn't be here right now. And it's those awkward moments, isn't it, that sort of make us shrink back, make us want to build up some walls and create our defenses. It's those awkward moments that I want to suggest to you that as apprentices to Jesus, we've got to get a lot better at engaging with. Specifically, awkward meals. If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, I'm convinced that you've got to get more comfortable with awkward meals. Josh did a great job unpacking the next part of Psalm 23 last week. And today we're going to be camping out in Psalm 23, verse 5. If you have your Bible, you can begin to turn there where David, the warrior poet, is going to be introducing us to an awkward meal that we are all invited to. He's just declared that the Good shepherd leads us through the valley of the shadow of death that with his strength, his rod, and with his wisdom, his staff, he guides us. And then he says this next in Psalm 23, verse five. You prepare a table before me. And would you read the next line with me, church? In the presence of my enemies. 
Now, now here's the picture that David's painting. God is the great host. And he's preparing a table, which is a Hebrew moniker for a, a, a spread, a meal. It was a picture amongst the Hebrew people of joy, of love, of provision, of goodness, of kindness. And if you were to read through the gospels straight through, what would you would find is that the table or the banquet would soon be synonymous with the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God is described like a, a table, a festival, or a feast. And so David's first proposition is that God puts the spread out. He's the, the great host. And he says there's two groups of people present at that table. There's you. You prepare a table before me, David says. And the picture is of David pulling up a chair at that table. And then he says, in the presence of my enemies. Which is designed to create some cognitive dissonance for us. We're supposed to go, well, that would be an awkward meal. To feast in front of our enemies for a shepherd to say to his sheep, um, why don't you lie down in these green pastures while the lions and the bears look on and just relax and enjoy the feast? Or a Kurd and a Syrian to sit down and enjoy a great feast. Or a saint to sit down right in front of their sin and to feast. To dine with our enemies. That's an awkward meal. Now, I think most of us think that David probably got it just a little bit wrong. David, it's not that we dine in front of our enemies. David, here, here's, here's actually the way it should work. It's that, that it's us and then our enemies stand be, in between us and the table, right? And so we've got to defeat our enemies before we can rest at your table. We've got to conquer all those things that stand in between us and God. And when we finally conquer all of those things that stand in between us and God, then we can sit down at God's table, at his kingdom, at his joy, with his presence, and then we can relax. I'm sort of wired to be the kind of person where I like to get all of my work done before I rest. Who's with me? What I learned a while back was that if I wait to get all of my work done before I rest, I never actually rest. Anybody want to say amen? Which is why the practice of Sabbath keeping has been so important to me over the last few years. Sabbath is the practice of resting even when there's work still to be done. But I realized that that wasn't just the way I approached life and work balance. It was also the way that I had approached spirituality, relationship with God. God, I will rest at your table after my enemies are defeated. Do you know what we call this? We have a word for this. It's called religion. <laughs> religion simply defined as a man's search for God. That God will get to you 
once we get through all of the things standing in front of us. And so you might walk into these doors every single weekend going, what do I need to do in order to get to God? And if that's the way that you think the story of the scriptures is told, I have great news for you. You're wrong. In fact, the order that David puts forward is so important. He says, no, 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 it's not that my enemies stand in between me and the table. It's that God has brought the table to me in front of my enemies. It's his work. He's the host. It's not my effort, David would say. It's all God. It's all grace and it's all mercy. If you hear nothing else from me today, please hear me say as clearly as I can, your enemies do not stand in between you and God. Because of the grace of Jesus, he has brought the table to you. Now, here's what some of you might be thinking. Well, Paulson, that's way too easy. (laughs) And wouldn't that mean that if God brings the table to us and we don't have to fight through our enemies to get to the table, which by the way, we define this as gospel. And if we don't have to fight through our enemies, wouldn't that lead us towards like licentious living? Wouldn't that make us be people who would just sort of throw our hands up in the air and go, well, who cares how we live and who cares what we do? You know what's really interesting is that the Apostle Paul wrote a letter called Romans to a church at Rome, and he assumed that his readers would have that exact same thought in mind. Here's what he wrote in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. He said, now the law came to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, say it with me, church, grace abounded all the more. And so his assumption is, you as the reader would be thinking to yourself, well, what should we say then? Are we to continue to sin so that grace would abound? So here's an insight. If you, read Romans one through five, and you don't start thinking to yourself, well, the grace of God is so big. It's so amazing. It's so all encompassing. Who cares how we live? You are not reading it correctly. (laughs) Paul assumes that's what you're going to be thinking. And so his answer to this question of if God's grace is so amazing, if he brings the table to us in the presence of our enemies, should we sin all the more? His answer to that is, may it never be. No way. You're free from sin. And then he invites you to walk free in a way that maybe you didn't expect. He says this, for sin shall have no dominion, no reign over you since or because. So this is the mechanism. You are not under law, but you're under what? Grace. Oh. So this idea that we have to fight through our enemies, keep 
the law in order to get to the table. He says that is a sure way to fail in living the Christian life. You actually get to live the Christian life by reminding yourself he's brought the table to me. I am under grace. I am no longer under law. And that's where the freedom of God comes from. Friends, it's the feast of grace that fuels the life of faith. And we often think we either have to run from our enemies or we have to pull up our bootstraps and fight our enemies on our own. But there's this counterintuitive third way that David says and Paul picks up on. Or what if instead of fighting our enemies on our own and what if instead of running from our enemies, what if, what if we allowed God to prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies? And, and what if we, what if we ate in front of our enemies? What if we feasted on grace and goodness and mercy and love while our enemies looked on? You might be thinking to yourself, well, Ryan, what are some of our enemies? I'm glad you asked that. Four stories that I wanna share with you. They're each from the scriptures and from the gospel specifically, and they all happen around a table. They all involve feast and they all involve enemies. Story number one, Mark chapter six, if you wanna turn there and look along. Mark chapter six, and <clears throat> this will set a little bit of the context for us. It says this in Mark chapter six, verse 29, when, Je when his disciples, Jesus' disciples, heard of it. Now, quick time out. The it here is that John the baptizer, Jesus' cousin, has just been beheaded by Herod. This bloodthirsty ruler who rules this empire with an iron fist has killed their friend, a leader, and someone that they all looked up to. They came and took his body and they laid it in a tomb. And after this, Jesus says to his disciples, come away with me. Let's rest for a little while. It's been a long season of ministry. You've walked through this pain of losing a good friend. Come away with me to a desolate place and you will find rest. You might know the story. His disciples are resting and then people who are needy, who want something from Jesus, they just pile on. And Jesus promises them a vacation and they're right back into ministry. And here's the way that Jesus responds. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Um, Mark is intentionally dancing with Psalm 23. And he began to teach them many things. Well, you know the story. Jesus didn't just teach them many things. He actually fed them. 5,000 men fed. On this little Galilean hillside, in the midst of Herod and Caesar's empire, you have this patch of grass that's turned into this eternal banquet. And Jesus said to, says to them, bring all of your pain, bring all of your loss, bring all of the things that 
are warring your soul. And in the midst of those things, come and sit down at my banquet. And pain can wear a lot of different masks. It might, just, it might not just be loss like the disciples and the people on that hillside had experienced it. It might show up as anger. It might show up as worry. It might show up as an inability to be intimate and to be close with other people because deep down inside, there's this seed of pain and grief and loss that we just simply can't seem to move beyond. And some of you walk in these doors every single Sunday and your thought is there will come a day, one day when I finally feel back to myself and I finally feel okay. And then I will get to sit down at the banquet of God. And then once I get through my enemies, then I will be able to feast. And I just want to invite you today to dream about what if, what if God wants to invite you to feast in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the loss, in the midst of the diagnosis that you didn't think was coming. See, as a follower of Jesus, you don't have to wait for pain to fade before you partake of his feast. Story number two. There was a father who had two sons. Anyone know where this one's going? The younger son said to his dad, I'd like my share of the inheritance. It was akin to saying to your father, you're better off to me dead than you are alive. The father cashed out, gave his son his share of the inheritance and his son take it, took it and he blew it all on licentious living, wild living. And then in the far off country he was in, a famine came through and totally wiped him out. He was at the end of his rope. And he thought to himself, okay, I'm just going to go back and I'm going to tell my dad, I just want to be a part of your house. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. If you know the story, you know that the father doesn't even wait for him to give this speech. He runs to him, sees him on a road far off, runs and kisses him, puts a ring on his finger, a robe on his back. And then he says to the servants in the house, throw a feast, throw a banquet, throw a party, make a table. Because my son who was dead is now alive. You wonder what it would be like sitting down at that table as a younger son, with the memory of where he's been, the memory of how he completely discarded his father's affection, the memory of the way that he blew all the money that his dad had given him, and the music and the dancing. I wonder if they just reinforced this idea that, oh, I'm a failure. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a failure. 
This is a narrative that so many of us have that dances around in our head, that spins like hamsters on a wheel. Guilt and shame become the lens that we see the world through. And our thought is often just like the younger brother's thought. God, I know you can't fully accept me as your own because of what I've done and where I've been. So just make me a second class citizen in your kingdom. Can I preach a little bit today? There is no such thing as a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. If you have been purchased by Jesus, put your faith in Jesus, he has made you completely clean, completely holy, completely new, so you can pull up a chair for your past failures and go, I know that that's where I've been, and I know that that's where I've done, and I know that that's the road that I walked down. Mm. But my God is so good and his grace is so sufficient, excuse me for a moment, (laughs) that I don't need to hide where I've been in order to earn his love. Friends, it's grace that frees us from the belief that we have to hide our true self in order to receive true love. It's a absolute lie from the pit of hell to think I have to cover my shame in order to receive love. The gospel declares over you and over me that we can dine on grace in the presence of our failures, in the presence of our enemies. We are invited to his banquet. Yeah, There is therefore now, right now, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation, brand new. The old has gone, the new has come. Which brings me to Kanye West. (laughs) You may have heard that Kanye released an album the last few weeks that was distinctly a Christian album. It's entitled, Jesus is King. And it created sort of an uproar, a ripple effect within the Christian community, some celebrating, oh great, we have a great A celebrity to proclaim the gospel, and others going, I'm not so sure. I mean, Kanye's got some enemies that he's got to fight through before he gets to the table. Friends, the same grace that purchases you a place at the table, the same grace that purchases me a place at the table is the exact same grace that purchases Kanye a place at the table. And if there's not a place setting for Kanye who puts his faith in Jesus, there's not a place setting for you either. It's all grace. It's all grace. So what if you said, that's where I've been and that's who I've been and God's grace is sufficient for me. Story number three. Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he? Yeah, yeah. He climbed up in a sycamore tree to see what he could see. And as Jesus walked through Jericho, there's this shortened stature tax collector up in a tree. A tax collector someone who'd ripped everybody in that crowd off, turned his back on his own people, partnered with Rome in order to extort the people around him. And Jesus looks up at him and he says to him, 
Zacchaeus, repent of your sin. Repent of your wrongness. Repent of all that you've done. And then Zacchaeus, I will come over to your house. Is that the way the story goes? It's often the way we read it though. No, no, what Jesus says to him is Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. Exactly as you are. You're a cheat, you're a liar, you're a sellout, and I'm coming to have a feast at your house, which is really interesting. If you read through the gospels, just pay attention to how many times Jesus invites himself over for dinner. (laughs) And here's what he says to Zacchaeus, guest number three. Yeah, in your present sin, not just the sin that's in your rearview mirror, but in those hurts, those habits, those hangups, those struggles, those addictions, those things that you just can't quite get over that you're beating yourself up about. And your thought is, if I can just get over that thing, then God will accept me. Then God will love me. Then God will welcome me to his table. And what I want to clearly say to you today, um, as passionately as I can, is that perspective means that your enemies are in between you and God's table. No, but God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the way the journey begins. And the apostle Paul will say in the book of Galatians, church, did you begin by law and then transfer to spirit? No, 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 no. You started with spirit. You started with grace. That's the way the whole thing works. And you know what? Sin starts to lose its power. Not when we beat ourselves up, And not when we go, I'm going to work really hard. And not when we run away from it. You know when sin actually starts to lose its power? At the table. Where you remind yourself. God's grace is sufficient for me. Even in the midst of my struggles that are going on right now. Now, and do you know what that does? We are affection-driven people. And the scriptures would say that we love God because he first loved us. The goal of the entire Christian life is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your strength, with all of your might. That, that really, we worship our way into sin and the way out of sin is through worship as well. And the how behind that, the way that that works, if we love because he first loved us, the way to love God more is to remind ourselves all the more that in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our pain, and in the midst of our failure, we are loved. Love the way that the great Puritan author put it. He says this, Walter Marshall, you cannot love God if you are under the continual secret suspicion that he's really your enemy. You simply cannot love God unless you know and understand how much he loves you. You've heard it said before, but I wanna say it again. 
that there's absolutely nothing that you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less. There certainly are things that you can do to help your soul realize that you're loved. But it doesn't change the quantity and quality of affection that is flowing toward you from your heavenly father. And there's only one thing, friends, that can keep you from this table. You. It's pride. I I don't need it. I'll fight my enemies off and then I'll make it there. Or we can go older brother and go, I'm not going if they're invited. But the only thing that can keep you from this table is you. So three things I want to give you as we close to hopefully give you some tools to say, what does it look like to to dine well? What does it look like to feast on grace in a way that fuels the life of faith? First, remember that you live from love, not for love. That every day of your life, you are loved by your heavenly father on your best day and on your worst day. What if you dared to trust that this week? Secondly, I want to encourage you to focus on the feast rather than on your enemies. I mean, our default is to focus on our enemies, isn't it? I mean, how many accountability groups are based around rehearsing our enemies? What if we started both to say, these are some very real enemies that are in front of me and by God's grace, I dine in front of them. His love is over me. His grace is sufficient for me. This is the model that the scriptures present to us. The author of Hebrews would say it like this. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin, which so closely or clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that's set out for us. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, how do we do that? How do we throw aside every weight and every sin that so easily entangles? And he goes, listen, here he comes. Looking to whom? Jesus. That's how we run this race. We don't look at our sin and the weight that so easily entangles. We look to Jesus. I love the way. I love the way that the scriptures invite us to put our hope fully in him. So place all of your dependency on Christ's sufficiency, every little bit of it. And I don't know where you stand with Jesus today, but here's what I do know. If you're not yet a follower of Christ, let me say it as clearly as I can. None of us come to the table of his love and his goodness and his joy, beating our chest and saying, we have done it. We are carried to the table by grace. We stay at the table by grace. We feast in front of our enemies by grace alone. That's all we've got, friends. That's it. I love the way that the great author and scholar, Robert Farr Capone put it. He said this, grace only works on the untouchable, the unpardonable, and the unacceptable. It works in short by raising the dead, not by rewarding the living. I don't know about you, 
But I want to be the kind of church that says we have space at the table for the broken, for the hurting, for the struggling, for those walking in pain, for those with failure, for those struggling with sin, for people that don't look like us, don't talk like us, who might even not believe like us when we, they walk in these doors. I want them to hear that grace is carrying them to the table too. And grace has a name and his name is Jesus. Oh yeah, one last guest. It happened on arguably the most awkward dinner of all time, where the Messiah, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, took off his outer garment, tied it around his waist and got down on his knees and started to wash his disciples' feet. He came to Peter and Peter was just the guy that said what everybody else was thinking. No way. You're not washing my feet, Lord. I'm unworthy. I don't deserve this. You, King and Lord, washing my feet? And here's what Jesus says back to him. Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, I know, I know that you're unworthy. And I know that you didn't make it to this table on your own. And Peter, I know everything going on in your head as to why I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing. But Peter, it's not law and performance that got you here. It's grace and love and grace and love will keep you here. So today, friends, we're invited to pull up a chair and dine in front of our enemies, our enemies of pain, our enemies of failure, our enemies of sin, and our enemies of unworthiness that oftentimes dance in our head and dance with our, in our heart. And so many of us come to this table, the table of his broken body and his shed blood, and our thought is exactly what my thought was sitting at that dinner table with those leaders. I don't belong. You're right. You're right. On your own, you don't belong. But our story and our song throughout all of eternity will not be, we did it. Our story and our song will be throughout all of eternity in my unworthiness and in my brokenness, he did it. He carried me to his table to dine in front of my enemies. So today we bring our pain to be comforted. We bring our failure to be forgiven. We bring our sin to be defeated. And today we get to feast on grace in a way that fuels this life of faith.